You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Um, all right. Well, good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Riz. Uh, you can call me that pastor here at Reality Honolulu. Honored and blessed and excited to be with you guys this morning and in, like Butch said, in the book of Mark, uh, just the last few weeks, and then we're headed in to uh, the book of Philippians, which I'm really excited about. But uh, why don't you guys turn with me today to Mark 15, 1 through 20. Mark 15, 1 through 20 is our text today. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, maybe I can't hear myself that well. That's right. I don't, I don't need to. I'm loud enough. Uh, <clears throat> all right, Mark 15, 1 through 20. As always, if you do not have a Bible, please share with someone next to you. Or as you walk in, always feel free to grab one so that you have one. Uh, and if you even need more, you always got your phone and to, to whip out and get the scripture. Or it will be on the PowerPoint screen. But as we read our text today, and as we read specifically next week as well, What we need to be reminded of, before we get into today, before we get to next week, as we read the account of the crucifixion and the time leading up to the crucifixion and all that it entailed, and its brutality and its rawness and its vivid imagery of what happened to Christ on the cross, what we need to be reminded of is that everything that happened to Jesus was for us. It was for us. There was purpose in it, and it was out of God's love for us that he did this. We're going to dissect and dig into that these next few weeks. But as we read it, and right as it's, as it's brutal and raw and, and just hard to hear of what happened to our Lord, we need to be remem- reminded that it was all for us. And as we've been reading the book of Mark, what it has been is just this, this story, Actually, all of scriptures is God's story, right? It's a story that God is writing in all of humanity. And if a story had a climax, it would be right now. Everything has been leading up to this point. The entirety of the Old Testament and everything thus far, what Jesus has done, what he's spoken out, every miracle, every teaching, everything that's happened in history has is crescendoing at this point in the story. And it always has been and always will be the climax of the story, of God's story. This week and next week, we see much of prophecy fulfilled. Hundreds, if not thousands of years of prophecy are coming to pass in the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah that would die for humanity. And so as we read this, we just need to be reminded that all that's happened, not only is it the most important part of Christianity and the story, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's, it's prophecy coming together, and everything has been waiting for this point. So why don't you read with me Mark 15, 1 through 20, and we'll get into it. It says this, Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, excuse me, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. 
Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Verse 9. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at that point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? The mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick. They spit on him, dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him again, and they led him away to be crucified." Join with me as we pray for this today. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this time that we have this morning. We just recognize that you are the senior pastor of this church, and we want all that you have for us today. Would you lead us by your spirit through your word? God, would you soften our hearts to receive all that you have and God, we ask that the truth of your word would set us free today. That we would hear it and receive it and believe it. God, we just pray in advance that you would do this. We thank you in advance for what you want to do. Give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's what's happening. If you're here with us last week, it'll be a slight recap. If you weren't, this will be helpful. Jesus, last week, in the last part of chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, was on trial with the Sanhedrin all throughout the night. The Sanhedrin made up of the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders and the, the religious police, police, so to speak, of the day. And they grabbed Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. They took him straight to the high priest's home. And they met all night long into the, the wee hours of the night trying to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And what happened was is that they had this trial. They had these witnesses. The witnesses they had, their stories didn't line up. It didn't pan out. And the high priest finally just asked Jesus outright, are you the Messiah? Are you the blessed one? Literally meaning, are you God? And Jesus very famously said, I am. 
I am who I say I am. Meaning, I am God, and they lost it. They literally tore their clothes off, and this was the last straw. This was like his death sentence. And they all unanimously decided, he's done. He's a blasphemer. We got to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor, so that he can deal with this guy. What happened last week is that Jesus, by declaring who he was, sealed his fate, and the entire council condemned him. And when we pick up this morning is very early this next morning. Not many people got sleep that night, right? But very early in the morning, they met and they brought Jesus to Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor at the time. Israel was under Roman rule under the Roman Empire, and Pontius was the guy in charge, and he was not one to be messed with. He was not nice by nature. He was not fair by nature. And so they took him, took Jesus to Pilate, ultimately to make a ruling. See, these Sanhedrin, this high council, the high priest, didn't have any legal power. Yes, as religious leaders, they had a lot of influence in society, and sometimes they did take things into their own hands, but this time, because so many people did follow Jesus, Jesus, to, some, to a lot of people, was the Messiah. They couldn't just you know, take him to a field and kill him. They had to do it the right way, and so they took, with their unanimous decision, they took Jesus to Pilate to ultimately rule legally what would happen. And so the majority of our text today is this trial with Pontius Pilate with the crowds and with the Sanhedrin. And what happened is, is that Pilate's just trying to sort out what's happening. And so he's hearing some charges against Jesus. He's giving Jesus an opportunity to answer. Jesus isn't answering. And Pilate's more or less trying to figure out if this Jesus is actually at fault, See, Pilate is really only concerned to keep kind of the Jews um, at peace, right? He just doesn't want an uprising. He doesn't want to like ruffle too many feathers. He's going to obey Roman rule, but he doesn't, he's not so caught up like the Jews are with Jesus. He's actually just trying to conduct a legal trial in the way that he should. And what Pilate does is he actually finds no fault. He finds no fault in Jesus, This man is not deserving of death. He does not deserve to be arrested. What is he doing here? Pilate doesn't want to do this. Pilate doesn't want to do this. But Pilate and Rome didn't really like the Jews. That that was, that was a known fact. He was mean to them. He thought they were just a nuisance. He had just been that imperialist that came in and took it over and under Roman rule. And they were just having, the Jews were just people he had to deal with. But Rome came up with this idea that once a year, to appease the crowds, they would release a prisoner. And this was very customary over Passover. We see that in our text, that once a year during Passover, the Roman government, Pontius Pilate, would say, hey, who do you want to be released? And we'll release that prisoner, kind of as an olive branch, as a way to say, I know we've imprisoned you, and you're under Roman occupation, but here you go, here's one of your people back. That's what was happening. So to appease the crowds and people, Rome had this customary once a year prisoner uh, freeing. And at this time, Passover was when the most amount of people were in the city of Jerusalem. 
Passover was the most holy celebration for Jews. They would come to Israel to celebrate what God had done by freeing them out of slavery in Egypt. And so the city is bustling, the crowds are yelling, and it comes to the annual freeing of prisoners at the same time that Jesus is on trial. This is Passover. And so the same day that naturally they'd have a prisoner uh, giving up, Jesus is on trial. And Pilate asks the crowd who they wanted. There was this guy named Barabbas, and he was a murderer. He was a revolutionary that was sentenced to death. He was, he was a convicted murderer. But... When Pilate asked the crowd who they wanted to give up, they quickly and unanimously twice said, him, Jesus, crucify him. There was no question that they wanted the murderer released. There was no question about anyone else other than Jesus. Even though on all accounts, Jesus was innocent. Even Pilate, when he questioned the Sanhedrin as the crowds, they said, what crime has he committed? If we look at Luke's account of the same thing, in Luke's account, it says that Pilate said to the crowd, he made a decision, and he said, I have found no fault in him. Luke 23, 14. Pilate did not want to do this. Pilate found that Jesus was not guilty and did not want to, but to appease the crowds, to prevent an uprising from happening in the courts. He gave in to their madness to pacify the crowds, to not make the crowds upset. And what he did was he released a murderer and he sentenced an innocent man to death. That's exactly what's happening here. A convicted murderer is set free and an innocent, blameless man is convicted to death. Freedom for the cross. And Jesus is convicted at that point. Even though he is an innocent man to appease the crowds, he is convicted of, of guilty unto death by penalty of crucifixion. We're going to look into the crucifixion next week in depth. But what happened was is that what proceeded to happen next is that Jesus is arrested. In that moment, there's no rebuttal. There's no anything else. Jesus is arrested on that moment. Barabbas is freed and they arrest him. And immediately Pilate orders him flogged, beaten with a lead-tipped whip, with a whip with, some, with lead on the end. And he's beaten in that moment right there. You're convicted. You're a guilty man in front of the crowds. You're beaten. Then they take him and they put a purple robe on him and they tied crowns of thorn on his, on, his, on his head as a crown. And this was strictly to mock Jesus. The king at that time would have worn a somewhat of purple robe. And so they took obviously not as nice of a purple robe and they wrapped it around Jesus. They did not give him a crown befitting a king, but they actually gave him a crown of thorns and they put it and they shoved it on his head. And all of this was done to mock him as the quote unquote king of kings. They begin to taunt him and insult him. They beat him more. They spit on him. And if that wasn't enough, they get on their knees and they mock worship him. 
king of the Jews, look at you. You're here, you're now, you're getting beaten, you're nothing. I mean, I can only imagine what they were saying to him at that time. We have that scene in the Roman courts with the Roman soldiers, and they, after all that happens, it says that they lead him to be crucified. We're gonna pick up where the story leaves off next week, and we're gonna see the crucifixion. But what we see here is actually a picture of the gospel. See, whether or not we all know it, we're all Barabbases. Like in a spiritual sense, when it comes to our sin before God, we're guilty. Like we have all committed sin. We're all guilty before God. And Paul The Apostle Paul explains this in depth through his letter to the church in Rome, in the book of Romans. He starts off by the book of Romans in Romans chapter 3, 23, and he just says straight out, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not the really bad, all of humanity has fallen short of God's glorious, perfect standard. We've all sinned. We've all been disobedient. We're all in this together. And what Romans 3.23 reminds us of is that we're all Barabbases by nature in a spiritual sense. We are all guilty. We're all guilty. We've all done it. We've all made the mistakes. Paul goes on in Romans 6.23 to say, the wages of those sin is death. I'm going to get to the second half of that verse if you know it. Don't worry. (laughs) The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned, and the wages, the results, the fruit, what we should get from our sin is actually death. That's what it will give us if not dealt with. The thing is, is that we... What we deserve because of our own sin, not blaming anyone else, our own sin, our own personal sin against God, what we deserve to get is actually death. It's physical, eternal death apart from God because of our sin. And there's not one of us, we may not have got to the place where we admit that or believe that, but there's not one person that this is exempt from. The wages or the results of our sins have grave consequences. If not dealt with, if not taken care of, if not forgiven, if not forgiven by Jesus, our sin, what it will get us is eternal separation from God. It's in a place called hell. That's what it is. The Bible talks a lot about hell, but we, we've made up a lot of times our pictures of what hell looks like, right? We've, we've done that in the scary place and the fire and the demons. Yes, there's some of those elements there, but that's not the bad parts. You're like, what do you mean? The bad part of hell, the reason why you don't want to go to hell is because you are eternally separated from God. Like, no God. That, that God is not with you forever, that's the scary part. That's the bad part. That's the most terrifying part of it. But that's how big a deal sin and disobedience is to God because God's a righteous judge. He's a judge that, he's, 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 a, he's a God that is just and he's fair and he's righteous and he doesn't cut corners or shy away from the penalty of sin. Like, you can't just go, oh, you know what? Like, 
I know you didn't mean it, so yeah, come anyway. That's, that's not how it works. God is absolutely righteous and just and fair and holy and perfect. And sin has separated us here and now from God. And if not dealt with, we will eternally be separated from God. So this is like a big deal. Like we're guilty unto death and we're on our way to be apart from God forever. That's, this is where the train tracks are going. But it doesn't stop there. There's, there's more to that Romans 6.23. But God made a way through his son. Christ has made a way. And it says that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's hope to this story. There's an ability to change the course of where your train tracks are going, so to speak. Where this road is going of sin and the consequences of sin, there is a way to remove that and stop that and to be with God for all of eternity, not away from him. And here's how he did it. Our perfect, sinless God gave up his life in exchange for ours. A prisoner exchange, so to speak. In the same way that he did with Barabbas, he does with us. A few hundred years ago, theologians coined this phrase, the great exchange. Spurgeon and the boys, back in the day. Theologians like them coined this, the great exchange. And what I mean by that and what they mean by that is Christ took our sin, our guilty sentence, he took it upon himself and he gave us his righteousness or his innocence. That's the exchange that was made. Christ took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is where this phrase great exchange comes from. I'm going to give you two different versions because they're a little bit different and they both communicate something slightly different. 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the New Living Translation says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering of our sin, excuse me, for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The NASB says it this way, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the exchange that happened? That is not a fair deal. Literally all our sin, all of humanity's sin, all the consequences, the wages, all that it would give us, everything was put upon Christ when he died on the cross. He took it for us and he gave us or literally imputed to us his righteousness. He paid our penalty with his own life and our debt that we had accrued. Our debt, the wages, the results, what we had accrued is forgiven. Like Christ paid our debt for us. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been in debt or like a massive debt or like you went to college at all Then you have massive debt. A lot of you guys have masters and PhDs in here. So massive, massive, massive debt. But it's like someone coming up and saying, that debt is free, I paid for it. No, you no longer have that. It's gone. 
It's not, it's not, I, I paid it. It wasn't just magically gone. I paid for it for you. But it's about eternal life is what we're talking about. Colossians 2.14 says it this way. Christ, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We had a debt that we accrued, no one else, us, me, you, everyone. And Christ took that debt for us and nailed it to the cross and paid it for us. And what Christ did in the great exchange is what we call substitutionary atonement. Big theological term, substitutionary atonement. All that that means is that Jesus substituted his life for ours and that atones for our sins. It pays the price for us. Substitutionary atonement is the basis and the core doctrine of what we believe as Christianity. It's not by our own righteousness that we are saved. It's not of ourselves, but it's of Christ. It's of his life that was paid for us. 1 Peter 3.18 continues to validate this. It says, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, right? The guilty for the innocent, the Barabbas for the Christ, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The picture that we see in our text in Mark is a picture of our spiritual state before God. And if some of you in here are still a little confused or wondering how Jesus can die in our place, like how does that work? How does that make sense? Uh, listen, to one, listen to how one author explains it. I'm gonna read this, it's on the PowerPoint. Since Jesus is God, he is perfectly righteous and holy. God's perfect righteousness and holiness demands that sin be punished, Ezekiel 18.4. And Jesus' perfect righteousness and holiness qualified him to bear the punishment for the sins of those who will be saved, Romans 6.23. Jesus is the only person who has never committed a sin. Therefore, the punishment he bore when he died on the cross could be accepted by God as satisfaction of his justice in regard to the sins of others. You with me? Nope. If someone you love commits a crime and is sentenced to death, you may offer to die in his place. However, if you also have committed crimes worthy of death, your death cannot satisfy the law's demands for your crimes and your loved ones. You can only die in his place if you are innocent of any wrongdoing. Jesus, since Jesus lived a perfect life, God's justice could be satisfied by allowing him to die for our sins of those who will be saved. Because God is perfectly righteous and holy, he could not act in love at the expense of his justice. By sending Jesus to die, God demonstrated his love by acting to satisfy his own justice. You get it, you see that. That is the story of scripture. That is the gospel. That is the good news of what Christ did. Another way to look at it is that as if we were on death row for crimes that we had committed. We had done it. We deserved it. Our own sin put us there. And we had the penalty of death, but Christ opened the prison cell. 
He stepped in, he freed us, and he died the death upon himself that we deserved. That's what Jesus did. That is the cross, that is the gospel. And if we receive and we believe that, then we stand before God the Father. He doesn't see our sin, but he sees Christ's righteousness. Remember the great exchange? If we believe and trust and repent and our sins are forgiven, we have Christ's righteousness. So when we stand before God, he doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as saints. That's how that works. I mean, doesn't that, for those of you that this is telling of who you are in Christ, like you've done this, it should cause you to worship. I mean, it it should remind us how thankful we are to be here now. But each of us have this opportunity. Like we have the opportunity to receive Christ's righteousness and his forgiveness. This isn't like a special thing that only some, it's offered to some people. I mean, this is, this is offered to the worst of us, to the criminal that's done the worst that's going to death. I was once in this place, right? I was confronted with my own sin and the consequences of my sin. I was confronted with what it meant and what I had done and, and the wages and, and, the, and the gravity of the lifestyle I was living. And I made the decision to admit my guilt of what I had done. I had to come to that place, but I came to the place where I admitted, yes, God, I've disobeyed you. I've sinned. I, I recognize that. But I also, in that, I admitted that I needed him. Like, I needed a savior to save me from my sin. We get maybe told there's another way, or I can just be better, or I can just change. When it comes to sin, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to Jesus, there is no other way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I had to come to that spot where I admitted my sin, but I admitted my need for a savior. And there was a moment where I believed and I accepted Jesus, right? I surrendered and I repented, which means just turning from my sin, I gave myself to God. I received his love and his forgiveness. That's, that, that's salvation. That's how you get saved. That's how you come to know Jesus. That's how, how you come to know him as a follower of Christ. And for some of you in this room, you may just be dealing with the temporal consequences of your sin. And that may be a start to recognize your, your, your spiritual need. But some of you may just like have hit rock bottom, so to speak, or there's been times or there's a time coming or you just feel like you're so lonely and desperate and lost. And some of you may just be feeling the temporal consequences of a lifestyle of selfishness and bad decisions and you may just be, your life may be unraveling. And you may not see or believe the full gravity of it, but I want to tell you today that you are not designed to live in rebellion to God. As much as it feels like, oh man, I can't be a Christian, I can't be saved, I can't do these things, you were actually designed to be led by God, for him to be Lord of your life. You weren't supposed to live your life alone, in your own way, in your own time. You weren't even built that way. Like in God's design, you were not made to live your life outside of God. And so what you're experiencing mainly is probably living outside of God's design. 
your life starts unraveling. And it'll only get worse. It won't get better until you come to Christ. Until you surrender, until you accept, until you go, you know what? Yeah, I gotta give up. I can't do this without you. The Bible would say in the same letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like that's how you make this happen. It's believing and trusting that Jesus is who he said he was. It's reading the Bible like we are this morning and just admitting that, yeah, I'm in need of that. I don't understand everything you said, but I want that. That, that's all that it takes. It isn't necessarily some secret prayer or some secret thing you do. It's just coming before God, recognizing that we're, a, that we're sinners and that we're in need of a savior. And if you want that, if you want to admit that, admit that in the same way that I did, um, if this is you, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Um, you can pray right where you're at in the quietness of your heart, but why don't we go ahead and, and just pray that? And so if this is you, if you want Christ right now, uh, pray this with me. And, and again, you don't have to pray it out loud, but it, it's believing it with, with, in your heart. Christ, I just recognize that I've lived for myself. I've recognized that I've not lived for you and I've made a mess of things. And I don't wanna go on and I want the truth to set me free. And God, I believe that you died for me to forgive my sins. I believe that you died in my place and, and, and you paid the penalty of my sin for me. And so God, I want to, ex I, I want, I want to come under your, your rule. I want you to be Lord. I want to turn away from my sin and I want to turn to you, Christ. And I no, wanna, no longer want to live for myself, but I want to learn what it means to live for Jesus. I want to experience your goodness and your grace and all that you have for me. I pray that I would do that. I give my life to you, and I pray that you would take it and have your way. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you believe that prayer, if you want that, for one, I want to rejoice with you. I want to rejoice that this is the, the best and the start of the best decision you've ever made. But also, we have men and women in the back that uh, want to pray with you and just like talk to you about like what that means. So if you prayed that or you're curious or you want to hear more, they would love to talk to you, give you a Bible, and just tell you like what that means to now walk with Jesus. But for those of us that are in here this morning, and we've already done that, we've already prayed that, we've already believed that. This is our opportunity to respond to God in worship and thank him for what he's done for us because the truth has set us free. Like we are freed from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil, and eternity in hell, and we, be, and we become his sons and daughters, and we're, we're born again, and we get to experience life and that abundantly for all of eternity, Amen. There is much to rejoice over and much to worship him over. So let's do that right now. God, if there's anything we want to say today is thank you and that you're worthy of all our praise. 
You're worthy of everything we could ever give you. God, thank you that we were once lost, but now we've been found. We were once blind, but now we see. We were once in bondage, now we live in freedom. We were once sentenced to death, but you took that death and gave us life. And so God, as we enter into this time of communion and worship and prayer, we ask that you would just get all the glory and you would be exalted in this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.